0: Amen, if you'll pull out your Bibles and open up to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 for our first uh, scripture reading. Uh, Our sermon text comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, where Peter instructs us to be sojourners and aliens. And Hebrews chapter 11, uh, I think, encapsulates a lot of this idea uh, for us and what it means to live the life of faith as strangers and aliens uh, in this uh, world. So we'll read Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, and then we will uh, flip over to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 uh, and read these passages uh, together. Uh, Here now the holy, inspired, and errant word of our God. Uh, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their com- commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Uh, By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go in a place that was He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, Because they saw that the child was beautiful, and that they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. The Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to speak of Gideon of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Then flipping over to 1 Peter chapter 2, sermon text in verses 11 and 12, I'll begin reading in verse 9. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, waging war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good conduct and glorify God on the day of visitation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, it endures forever. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We know that apart from your revelation, we would not have any knowledge of who you are. Uh, or of what you would require of us. But you have revealed yourself uh, to us, both in the world as well as in your word. And so uh, we ask that we would submit ourselves to your word, that you would work mightily in it, plant it deep within our hearts, plant it deep within our minds. Conform us to it, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the major hot-button issues among Christians today is the way that we relate to the broader culture. Christians particularly, and maybe the church a little bit more broadly in our relationship to the broader culture and politics of this world, uh, is a big question mark for many Christians in the church. And there are often two extremes that people will present about uh, how we ought to relate to the broader culture. One extreme uh, is that the church is meant to be a savior of the culture, uh, that the church should see itself as a sort of a redeemer. Our task is to redeem cultural institutions like art and science and uh, the justice system or the government. Uh, This view has the task of the church as a redeemer of the broader world. Uh, One scholar, Richard Niebuhr, uh, in his book, Christ and Culture, I think summarizes this view well when he uses the phrase, Christ transforms culture. He even says that the task of the Christian and the task of the church is to, quote, make culture, that you, Christian, are a culture-making person. Well, at the other end of this spectrum, there are those that see the church as a holy sectarian community, that we are called to separate ourselves from the broader society of the world and to only live amongst ourselves, that we should have separate Christian communities, separate Christian customs, separate Christian doctors and lawyers and the like. One side says we must break from society, the other that we must redeem society. And many would put these two things as our only two options, as a sort of either-or scenario, and you need to place yourself somewhere on this spectrum. Well, Peter, in our passage this morning, I think takes us in a different direction takes us to consider our relationship to the world in a different way than either two of those extremes. And we need to be careful here. I don't think Peter takes us to a middle road, somewhere down the middle of these two extremes. I think he takes us to a different concept entirely in describing how we ought to relate to the broader world. See, Peter tells us that we are to understand ourselves not as a sectarian community nor as cultural saviors or redeemers, but rather as strangers and aliens in a world that is not our own. See, Peter understands that as a consequence of our Christian faith, that we will suffer alienation, disenfranchisement, even suffering at the hands of the broader society. He understands that we cannot fully participate in the broader customs of the world. He understands that we're also not a sectarian people looking for schism and isolation, but neither are we cultural revolutionaries with redemptive-like qualities as we seek to make culture. Instead, what he says is that we are resident aliens, sojourners and aliens in the world who seek to live conform to God's holy will in a culture That is so often against the church and against the ethic of our God. He calls us to live in the world, but not to be of the world. Let's see this three parts this morning. First, in considering our identity as sojourners and exiles in verse 11. Uh, Second, in his call to act honorably in the first half of verse 12. And then lastly, to consider how we are these things in a missional way at the end of verse 12. Uh, so first, considering how we are sojourners and exiles in verse 11. Well, this paragraph in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is very important to both the structure as well as the theology of 1 Peter. See, from chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter has largely focused on the great benefits that you have as the elect of God, how you are chosen and precious And God's sight, and how you therefore relate to God as His redeemed holy people, and to one another as Christ's church, joined together and built up as a living temple in Christ, who is our chief cornerstone, as Peter outlined in chapter two, verses four through eight. But now, in chapter two, verses ten and eleven and twelve, Peter is shifting his thought from primarily how you relate to God and relate to one another to how you live in this world as sojourners and exiles. And in fact, he's doing this in a way that recollects the very opening of his letter. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, he called Christians elect exiles, elect sojourners. In chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10, he dug into your identity as the elect of God, as those who have received God's mercy. In fact, chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 2, verse 10, begin and end that section on that very note. Notice what he says back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us to be born again to a living hope. And notice how he ends this section in chapter 2, verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Everything between those two points is how you are the people of God by the mercy and love of God calling you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Once not his people, but now his people. The church of the living God through the work of his living son, Jesus Christ. But now, in chapter 2, verse 11, on through chapter 4, verse 11, what Peter is going to do is expound upon that other term from chapter 1, verse 2. Not how you are elect of God, but how even as you are the elect of God, you are sojourners and exiles in this world. See, most of what he will have to say in this section of the letter deals with how you are called to live godly lives in a time waiting for your promised heavenly inheritance. A time that is marked by suffering, marked by persecution, marked by disenfranchisement, marked by estrangement from the broader society of this world. Persecution at the hand of unbelievers. See, everything that he is about to say in this section of the letter has to do with how you relate to other people outside the church, like civil authorities in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Or, or even to those uh, who are servants and unloving servants at that, uh, over, or unloving masters over their uh, servants that are Christians in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Uh, or wives of unbelieving husbands in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 or how you are to relate to those who do evil to you and persecute you in chapter 3, verse 8, through chapter 4, verse 11. Everything that he is having to say about how you relate to those outside of the church is under the heading of sojourner and exile. While living in this world, part of what it means to be a Christian is that you are estranged from the world. Estranged not in the sense of an isolationist needing to create your own separate sectarian culture and community, rather estranged from the world in terms of your faith, estranged from the world in terms of your character, and estranged from the world in terms of your hope. Peter here is telling you about who you are in relationship to the broader world, and it is a relationship of estrangement and disenfranchisement. But Peter begins his exhortation, This exhortation dealing with a very hard word of estrangement to the broader world in a very pastoral way. Notice how he begins here. He opens calling you beloved. Beloved. The very first word he wants you to hear, as as he is about to expound upon what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ, is a word of close fellowship and endearment with himself. See, to address someone as beloved is to consider them as one who is dearly loved, who is dearly prized, who is dearly valued. A person that you have that special bond of fellowship with, that you care deeply for and long to see what is good for them. In, See, Peter has a lot to say in the next two chapters of of his book. It's about this life of enfranchisement and hardship and suffering, profound suffering at the hands of unbelievers. Fiery trials, as he will call them. In chapter 4, but he opens with affection. This sets the tone for everything he's about to say concerning your lives as believers. He is speaking out of love. He is speaking out of care for you as his beloved. And if you are the beloved of Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, then you are the beloved of God through faith. Peter is speaking the truth in love, telling you who you are as the beloved of God. And so he says to you, beloved of God, beloved of the church, beloved of Peter, he says that you are sojourners and exiles in reference to the world. See, Peter had just told us in verses 9 and 10 that you have been brought out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's marvelous light, received the mercy of God in Christ as his chosen race and royal priesthood. And now he is saying that you have that marvelous treasure that internal inheritance, that imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance of heaven as sojourners and exiles in this world. While called into the kingdom of his marvelous light, you still live in an age where you are surrounded by darkness on every side. And Peter is calling you to recognize that reality about yourself. How this world is not the ultimate hope of the Christian, but rather the world to come is the ultimate hope of the Christian. You see, as sojourners, as exiles, Peter is here calling us to recognize that we have no lasting city, no lasting inheritance in this world. We need to take care, beloved, that our hopes and our desires are not enslaved to this world. Our identity as Christians is more akin to that of the patriarchs, Peter is saying. See, in fact, Peter's words here remind us of the words of Abraham. As he goes into the land that is promised to him, and in Genesis chapter 23 verse 4 addresses the inhabitants of the land and says, I am an alien and a stranger among you. In fact, the only other use of the terms, pilgrim and exile, like we have here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, is in Hebrews 11 that we read a short while ago. Where in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, speaking of the patriarchs, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exile, same phrase, on the earth. See, to live this way, To have this identity is to recognize that the society in which we live today is not the great hope of the Christian. Remember what the author of Hebrews said, chapter 11, verse 16? To be a pilgrim and a sojourner is to desire a better country. And what is that better country? It's a heavenly one. That city whose designer and builder is God the place where God lays the foundations for his people to go and enter into Mount Zion, the heavenly city of the living God, we must learn again as Christians to realize that we are resident aliens in a foreign land. See, to be sojourners in this world means that you are citizens of the world to come. To be strangers and aliens here means that you are a citizen of the inheritance of heaven. In fact, Paul says something very similar to that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but who are you? A fellow citizen with the saints. Not a citizen of this world, but a citizen of the world to come. See, beloved, we must remember that this identity, this status as sojourner and exile and alien, this strangeness that we have to the world, it is not a problem that you are called to overcome. It's not a punishment that you are being subjected to as you suffer in this life. It is actually a working of God's grace. Remember the immediately preceding word you have received God's mercy. This reality of being a sojourner and an alien in this world is a mercy from God. God, in His His electoral love for you, has taken you out of citizenship in the world to citizenship in heaven. The same act that sowed mercy and fellowship with God brought you back to God has sown estrangement from the world. Yes, you will be estranged and disenfranchised and rejected by society, but you have been reconciled to God. You have been accepted in His Son. You have received the promises of a heavenly kingdom. Therefore, beloved, you can live your life now in relation to that great salvific reality, the great promises that you have received from Christ. Because you are a stranger in this world, and because you are a citizen of heaven, you are called to live with a heavenly ethic, to live your lives as a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, as a citizen of that kingdom of His marvelous light. Isn't that what Peter continues to say? He says, I exhort you as sojourners and exiles to do what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh. Peter's first groups of exhortations in his letter dealt with our relationship to God and one another. In chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 3, And now in his second set of exhortations, beginning here in verse 11, he deals with how we are to live our heavenly lives in the midst of our worldly sojourn. And that's why he says we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So we're often tempted, aren't we, when we hear words like flesh to think physicality, right? our physical bodies, as if Peter only has in mind here carnal sins or bodily sins like lust. And while carnal sins like lust certainly are sins of the flesh, Peter likely has in mind here the idea of fleshly as worldly. That is the way of life outside of Christ. It's very parallel to what he says back in chapter 1, verse 18, how we are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Or what he says in chapter 4, verse 2, how we are to live no longer for human passions, but for the very will of God. We are ransomed, Peter is saying, from these futile worldly passions, these futile worldly cravings, these sins and passions of the flesh, and set free to crave after God, to desire to live for the will of God, to taste and see that the Lord and He alone is good. Any and every sinful desire that rises up in this fallen world is what Peter is talking about here. That includes those carnal sins like sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties, as he says in chapter 4, verse 3. But it also includes sins like idolatry. Sins like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander from chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, the Apostle Paul has a very similar list in Galatians chapter 5, where he calls us to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he lists a good number of those Those desires of the flesh, the sins of the flesh. And they include carnal sins. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality in verse 19 of Galatians 5. But he also continues in verses 20 and 21 to list idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So what are these passions of the flesh that we are called to abstain from here? They are any vestige of sin that remains from the old man in the Christian's life. Any worldly rather than heavenly desire that crops up in your life as a Christian. Peter is calling you here to live your life in light of a heavenly calling and your heavenly inheritance. To live a life of the Spirit rather than a life of the flesh. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, he is calling you to fight the good fight of faith against indwelling sin. Isn't that what he says? These things, these passions of the flesh, wage war against your souls. Prepare for battle, Peter is saying. Get ready for war against your indwelling sin. Plan for it. Work in it. Prepare to engage in it. It's remarkable, isn't it? When we think of the broader aspects of our lives, we're more than willing to plan every single minute detail of a vacation. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, we just kind of go with the flow. Think we'll handle it whenever it comes upon us. This should not be. Prepare for war, brothers and sisters. Arm yourselves with the sword of the Spirit. Memorize the Word of God. Be ready to to slay these passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Pray to God. Lay out your heart before him. Confess your sins as we did a short while ago. Go to your brothers and sisters and let them work with you in that process of sanctification to die more to sin and live more to Christ. These passions of the flesh, these worldly desires, creep up from our indwelling sin within us and seek to lay us bare to mute our confession, to to dull our faith. But as sojourners, as exiles, awaiting our heavenly home, Peter says, you are to take that fight seriously. These worldly passions, they are not making a half-hearted suggestion. It's not like that little cartoon devil sitting upon your shoulder trying to coax you into sin. It is warfare against your soul. Fight the good fight of faith. Wage war against your indwelling sin. Kill the misdeeds of the flesh. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Or in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. See, we're often tempted, aren't we? When we think of sin and our relationship to the world, to see it as something outside of us. The temptations and all these things crop up from the broader world. But see what Peter, or Paul said there. Put to death what is earthly in you. That indwelling sin that wages war against your soul. Snuff it out. Instead, fan into flames the love of God that you have heard of in his word. But as you wage this war, as you fight this good fight of the faith, know this. We are called to put to death that indwelling sin as those who have already received the mercy of faith, who have already been made alive and healed by the work of Christ. Peter, in fact, will say in just a few verses that Christ has himself borne our sins on the body of the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been, do you see the past, have been healed. See, in his death, Our own sinful nature was crucified with Christ. Peter is not calling you to a losing battle. He is calling you to a battle that has already been won. It is not a war for your soul. It is a war against your soul. Your soul has already been won in Christ. Our indwelling sin, this fight we are to have, can cause us to have this shame in our spiritual lives where we don't want to gather with Christ's people where we don't want to confess our sin before Him. And Peter is saying here by taking our fight against sin seriously, we confess it to God, we submit to His church, and we long to be more like Christ. Do not let the shame of sin drive you away from the fight of faith. Rest in the One. has redeemed you rest in the one who has broken the reign of sin in your life rest in the one as peter will say who is the good shepherd of your soul and know that he loves you care for cares for you and works to restore you it is only by resting in christ that this war is won it's only by resting in christ that we can wage this war and it's also in christ that this war will be brought to an end as we will be brought into our heavenly inheritance. But more than just calling us to abstain and fight against those sinful desires, to kill the misdeeds of the flesh, Peter also calls us, at the beginning of verse 12, doesn't he, to honorable living. The negative of what you're to fight against in verse 11 has a positive side in verse 12. You must, he continues here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And most likely what Peter is saying here verse 12 is that the way you are to abstain from those sinful desires of the flesh is you do it by keeping your conduct pure among the Gentiles. And that he would speak of it this way I think is quite informative. See, we're often tempted, aren't we, when we say things like abstain from the passions of the flesh, to approach it in a sort of monkish-like way, that we are simply to to sit there to, to reflect upon who we are, to reflect upon our sin, and not do anything at all. But that's not Peter's instruction. Peter's instruction is that the way you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh is that you are to actively pursue righteousness in Christ. Pursue godly conduct in accordance with God's instructions. In fact, the current term conduct used here is very important in the letter uh, that Peter is writing. Uh, in fact, two-thirds of all the uses of this term in the New Testament occur here in First and 2 Peter. But the first use of it is in chapter 1, verse 15. Or Peter calls you to have a conduct, saying this, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This conduct is the same good behavior that the Christians have and are reviled for in chapter 3, verse 16. It's the same term used for the pure conduct of the godly wife in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What Peter is saying here is that you are to be holy as God is holy. This honorable conduct... Is reflecting the holiness of God in your ethical lives. And actually, if we give it a literal translation, Peter says here that you are to have a beautiful conduct among the Gentiles. Christians should live a life that has that mark of God's holy character upon it. Seeking to be holy as he is holy and therefore show the beauty of God's holiness and their character among the inhabitants of the world. See, I think it's significant that the first commandment that Peter gives in his letter deals with your holy conduct. And now as he's beginning his next section of commandments. He begins the exact same way to talk about having this beautiful conduct, this beautiful way of life. And the beautiful life, Peter says, is the holy life. Living a holy life in a world so marred and tainted by sin that even unbelievers can't help but see the beauty of holiness. That's a pretty good evaluation of what the beautiful life is, isn't it? See, to live the beautiful life is not what the world would have you believe. The world would have you believe that it means having the nicest house or car at it would have you believe that it means everything needs to go smoothly or right in your life. It means that you need to have a glamorous career. It means that you uh, need to have the, the most uh, dressed, our best dressed children and so on and so forth. But that's not the beautiful life. The beautiful life is the life of trusting and resting in Christ. The beautiful life is having your character modeled after the character of your Lord. The beautiful life is, in whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you pursue holiness and righteousness and humility. See, this heading is very significant for everything Peter's about to say in his letter. He's about to address how you live this beautiful life in relationship to those who have authority over you in the broader world. Even those who are dishonorable. It deals with how you are to relate to those who mistreat you. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. It deals with unbelievers that have close relationships with you. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And it deals with those that even hate you. In chapter 3, verse 8 through chapter 4, verse 11. Peter is calling you to live a humble and righteous life before those who are outside the church. See, what testimony is it when Christians are the most rude people to the receptionists. The rudest to the waitstaff at the restaurants and then turn around and talk about their church or their faith. So often we laud the people who fight for what is theirs, who are the loudest, who even stand up and and speak the loudest against cultural norms or the like, even full of vitriol and hate. But we see as weak those who are full of sympathy, those who are tender hearted, those who are humble. We have forgotten what it means to live this beautiful life among outsiders. To let the character of God and the gospel permeate every facet of our lives. Beloved, arm yourselves with the way of thinking where you seek to live for the will of God. The beautiful life is one that seeks to live honorably before God as well as before man. And Peter charges us in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Oh, the church would look so different if we charged our people with humility every Lord's Day in and out. He charges us, as he continues, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is a hard word, isn't it? When reviled, mistreated, slandered, even called evildoers by those outside of the church, our gut reaction is to do what? To respond in kind. To look them in the eye and say, how dare you speak of me in this way? Perhaps even to go uh, to broader institutions and try to find some sort of justification against them. Maybe a lawsuit for libel or slander, so on and so forth. But this is not Peter's instruction. Peter's instruction is to bear maltreatment with a humble spirit. While reviling, you do not revile. You do not repay evil for evil. You do not respond in kind. On the contrary, you bless. Why? Because when you suffer for righteousness' sake, when you are reviled and treated as evil, but you bless in return, you are living a gospel-shaped life before fellow men. Christ left you an example to follow, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 21, that you might follow in his steps, entrusting yourself to the Father in heaven who judges justly, freeing you to blast while being cursed, even unto death. See, this beautiful character you have and live in light of before the world is meant to present the character and gospel of Christ to them. That's what Peter calls us to consider last of all, that this beautiful life, And this character that you have is meant to, in a sense, be missional. Its purpose, he says at the end of verse 12, is in order that, or so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice what Peter is saying here. He doesn't say if they speak against you, does he? He says when. When they speak against you as evildoers. Christians hear this. At some point in your life, you will suffer at the hand of non-believers. Whether directly or indirectly in our broader culture. It's not an if, it's a when. And you will be called, perhaps have been called, evildoers because of your faith. Evildoers because of what you believe and hold to in accordance with God's word. You refuse to conform to the ethical life of non-belief and you are slandered because of it. And called evil. It is of the nature of the broader fallen world to call good what God calls evil, and evil what God calls good. We must learn to listen to God's Word, tune our ears to the faith that He has given us, to listen and to know what is good and what is evil. But Peter's question for you is simply this. How do you respond when that suffering comes? When you seek to vindicate yourself, will you revile in turn for being reviled? Peter calls you to something else. He calls us to that beautiful life, to that gospel-shaped life that even while being slandered will not slander, while being reviled will not revile, while being hated will not hate in turn, but will instead bless. Why? Because we are blessed in the one who is slandered, reviled, and hated unto death that we might be made right before God. And when unbelievers see that gospel-shaped life in the midst of suffering at their very hands, they can't help but ask, why? Why would you respond this way? What is the reason for this hope that is in you? How could you be hated by men and yet have this response of humility and love? In responding this way, you take them to Christ. You take them to the one who suffered in love and left us an example to follow. You take them to the one who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. see, beloved, living a life of holiness to God in Christ presents the call to holiness to all of those who are around us living this gospel-shaped life in the midst of hard suffering, presents the gospel before the world. You don't know, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and what? Praise your Father who is in heaven. And remember what Peter had just said, that you have been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. The church It's like a city on a hill, a beacon shining out into the darkness, calling people to repent, to return to God, to submit to Christ, to have faith in Him. Calling them to have that holy life of faith before the God of heaven. Your life, your life of holiness, your life as a sojourner and exile is a cross-shaped, gospel-shaped life. And it's meant to present your Savior to those who do not yet know him, that perhaps even they would be gathered into the throng of worshipers and seek to glorify God. And that's the mission of the church, isn't it? It's not to make culture. It's not to isolate ourselves out from the world. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because when we're living our lives this way, We are living in light of the great hope of heaven that he has provided for us all in Christ. We are looking to that day of visitation, that day of vindication, where all will be made right. This time when our age of sojourning and exile and wilderness wandering will be brought to an end and we will instead be inhabitants of that heavenly kingdom. Beloved, look to that day. Trust in the work of God. That he will bring you through this time of sojourning and wandering, going through this wilderness of the world. That he will bless you, that he will keep you, and he will bring you into his eternal kingdom. For to him is the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you are the one who has brought us out of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. That as you have uh, reconciled us back to yourself, you have sown Uh, fellowship with you, and discord uh, with the world. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would cause us to be good sojourners, good exiles, good resident aliens here in this world. Cause us to fight the good fight of faith, to wage war against our our, our indwelling sin. Keep our conduct pure, Lord. Cause us to live that beautiful life of holiness and righteousness and to bear the cross of suffering well. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.